0: Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode 257, The Iron Curtain, Part 2. Last time, we covered the early years of life behind the Iron Curtain. Today, we continue our journey moving forward. The Iron Curtain had trapped millions of people who would suffer from abuse by the Soviets, but none more than those in East Germany, now known as the German Democratic Republic or GDR. Before committing suicide in April 1945, Adolf Hitler had begged Germany's citizenry to fight against the Allied forces. He ordered the Wehrmacht to create youth battalions known as the Werewolves to fight back, especially against the Soviet Red Army. These were, for the most part, children Teenagers and young adults, many of whom knew nothing but an autocratic government. In her book, Iron Curtain, Anne Applebaum writes about a young man, Eric Lost, who was recruited into the werewolf movement. Lost was supposed to head the partisan fight against the Red Army, but when they entered his hometown of Mitvidia, he found a way west to surrender to the Americans instead of fighting. Unfortunately, some of his fellow teenage citizens forced to attend a lecture of the werewolves were not so lucky. The list of those at the meeting was turned over to the Soviet authorities. All those who attended were arrested based on Order 00315 of the Soviet Military Administration. This allowed the arrest of anyone without trial or evidence. At the Potsdam Conference, a declaration was made that, quote, Nazi leaders, influential Nazi supporters, and high officials of Nazi organizations and institutions, and any other persons dangerous to the occupation or its objectives shall be arrested and interned. After the war, the Soviet Red Army and the NKVD repurposed former concentration camps such as Buchenwald, Sachsenhausen, and Auschwitz as labor camps for those they viewed as threats to their regime. Overall, Ten camps were turned into prisons. However, as opposed to the Nazi use of slave labor, most of the inmates were not allowed to work at all. As a result, reports of extreme boredom were common. Applebaum describes the conditions and the effects on these political prisoners. Quote, The special camps were not death camps of the kind that the Nazis had constructed earlier. There were no gas chambers, and prisoners were not sent to Sachsenhausen to be immediately killed. But they were extraordinarily lethal, nonetheless. Of some 150,000 people who were incarcerated in NKVD camps in eastern Germany between 1945 and 1953, of which 120,000 were Germans and 30,000 were Soviet citizens, about a third died from starvation and illness. Prisoners were fed wet black bread and cabbage soup so bad that Lehman, who was later sent to the Gulag, remembered that in Siberia, the food was better and more regular. There were no medicines and no doctors. Lice and vermin meant that disease spread quickly. In the winter of 1945-46, it was so cold that the prisoners in the women's zone of Sachsenhausen burned bed slats to keep warm as was the case in so many Soviet penal institutions, prisoners did not die because they were murdered, but because they were neglected, ignored, and sometimes literally forgotten. She further goes on to write, quote, In the Soviet gulag, some contact with the outside world was possible, and inmates could even sometimes receive visitors. By contrast, during the first three years of the existence of the post-war German camps, Prisoners could not send or receive letters, and they had no news from the outside world whatsoever. In many cases, their families did not know what happened to them, where they were. They simply disappeared. One of the biggest atrocities committed behind the Iron Curtain was the mass exportation of people from their ancestral homes. In some cases, We could view these exportations as examples of ethnic cleansing. While we tend to blame Stalin for much of this, this concept was agreed upon at Potsdam by both American President Truman and British Prime Minister Clement Attlee. They called for the transfer to Germany of German populations remaining in Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Hungary. It didn't stop with the Germans. Because of the change in the border between Ukraine and Poland, millions of Poles were moved into Poland away from their homes, which suddenly became Ukraine. Also, there were about 70,000 ethnic Germans that were not shipped back to Germany, but to the Soviet Union. It had to be understood that the deportation of Germans was done in response to many of them conspiring with the Nazi regime during the war. As Applebaum points out, Some of the German inhabitants of the Polish city of Bydgoski, about a fifth of the pre-war population, actively assisted the Nazis in their 1939 slaughter of the town's leading citizens, including priests, teachers, and even Boy Scouts. That didn't make them popular after the war, either. One of the fascinating facts about the countries that lie behind the Iron Curtain immediately after the end of the war was how much of the homes and land were abandoned. The houses and farms of the Jews killed in the concentration camps were mostly empty, and the grounds were fallow. Also, the millions of citizens killed during the war added to this problem. The Soviets made good use of this situation as they redistributed the land and homes to those who supported their takeover. By the end of 1948, All of the countries behind the Iron Curtain were run by pro-Soviet communist parties. Additionally, any potential opponents had either been eliminated or fled to the West. But there was a significant problem, and it was felt most profoundly in the Soviet Union. Jealousy of the wealth and freedoms that the Red Army was made aware of in the West. Nobel Prize winner and Russian poet Joseph Brodsky wrote the following about the USSR's post-war years. Bikes were old, of pre-war make. The owner of a soccer ball was considered bourgeoisie. As Applebaum puts it, quote, the dissatisfaction even among believing communists was real. Stalin knew it, and the Soviet secret police knew it. During a private telephone conversation, taped and recorded by the KGB, a Soviet general who had returned home from the front told a colleague that absolutely everyone says how openly and how everyone is discontented with life. On the trains, it's everywhere. It's what everyone's saying. There was one attempt by the Soviet Union to expand the Iron Curtain, and that was in 1948 with the blockade of West Berlin. The Soviet's cut off electricity, shut off any way in or out of the city, basically laying the inhabitants under siege. While the pretext of the Berlin blockade was because of the introduction of a new currency in West Berlin, the Deutsche Mark, the real intent was to push the Americans out of the city and hopefully the rest of Germany. But of course, This failed to occur due to the massive airlift of supplies into West Berlin, starting on June 24, 1948, and ending with the Soviet capitulation on May 12, 1949. Another shock occurred behind the Iron Curtain in 1948 with the defection of Yugoslavia from under Stalin's control. In June of the same year, the rest of the countries within the Warsaw Pact voted to expel the country from the common form. Marshal Tito, the head of the Yugoslavian government, did not need any support from the Soviet Union as he had a firm grip on the country. The year is now 1950, and World War II has been over for five years. A new war has erupted, one that would plunge the world back into armed conflict, the Cold War. The year 1950 marks a dividing point for immigration from the East to the West. Prior to 1950, over 15 million people, mainly ethnic Germans, emigrated from Soviet-occupied Eastern European countries to the West in the five years immediately following World War II. That comes out to about 3 million a year. However, restrictions implemented during the Cold War stopped most East-West migration, with only 13.3 million emigrants going westward between 1950 and 1990. That comes out to only 332,000 a year for that 40-year period. These numbers do not include the ethnic Germans that were forced or expelled from the lands that the Soviets acquired either through the agreement they made with the Nazis in 1939, or the deals they made with the Allies at Yalta and Potsdam. These Germans were also known as the Volksdeutsche or Reichsdeutsche. The Volksdeutsche were, quote, people whose language and culture had German origins but who did not hold German citizenship. The Reichsdeutsche were those who lived within the German Reich or Empire from 1871 until 1949. It has been estimated that at least 2 million people died due to the flight and expulsion. 400,000 to 600,000 died by physical force. Surprisingly, the easiest border to cross between 1950 and 1953 was the German one. The number of Eastern Europeans applying for political asylum in West Germany was 197,000 in 1950, 165,000 in 1951, 182,000 in 1953, and 331,000 in 1954. This gain, most of which was based on those people leaving in the first three months of the year, was due in part to some of Stalin's paranoid decisions. The German people were most concerned with the changing political situation and the threat of further Sovietization. Now, in total, over three and a half million East German citizens left to move to West Germany until 1961. For the most part, these were the most talented people and often the most educated. This brain drain worried the Kremlin as well as the higher ups in East German government. Soviet ambassador to East Germany, Mikhail Perufkin, observed that, quote, The presence in Berlin of an open and essentially uncontrolled border between the socialist and capitalist worlds unwittingly prompts the population to make a comparison between both parts of the city, which, unfortunately, does not always turn out in favor of the democratic East Berlin. When my father and I traveled to West Berlin in 1970 to visit my grandfather, a retired concert master from the leipzig Gewandhaus, I was really impressed with the city and how modern it looked. When we crossed over to East Berlin to meet some cousins, I was shocked to see the difference between the two sectors. I mean, to this day, I still have a vivid memory of what I saw. There were still bullet holes in the buildings, Remnants of the intense battle for Berlin in 1945. Everything also seemed very gray and dull. One particular sign in a shop window struck me as something that defined the struggles of those behind the Iron Curtain. And that was the word verkauft in front of a purse. The term is German for sold. Most of the items in the window were sold, meaning they had no more to sell. Uh... We also came upon a line of people about two blocks or more long. My father asked them what they were in line for, and one person told us they had no idea, but they probably needed whatever it was. When we got to the front of the line, we found out it was for toilet paper. This, of course, helps explain why so many people wanted to emigrate to the West. Not only were the intellectual citizens of East Germany leaving, But many farmers also decided they would not suffer from the collectivization program that the Soviets forced on them. It is estimated that one-third of the top farmers left. This caused a large swath of farmland to fallow, which in turn led to food shortages. By 1960, World War II and the massive Western immigration left East Germany, with only 61% of the working-age population compared to 70.5 percent before the war the loss was disproportionately heavy amongst professionals engineers technicians physicians teachers lawyers and skilled workers. the direct cost of workforce losses has been estimated to between seven and nine billion dollars something happened to be had to be done and done quickly Even future Soviet premier Yuri Andropov then the Director of Relations with Communist and Workers Parties of the Socialist Countries for the Soviet Communist Party saw the growing problem. It was reported to Andropov that while the East German leadership stated they were leaving for economic reasons, the real truth was that the grounds were more political than material. And dropoff reported to his higher ups that, quote, the flight of the intelligentsia has reached a particularly Critical phase. On July 15, 1961, East German First Secretary Walter Ulbricht called a rare press conference, insisting, quote, No one has any intention of building a wall, but he made it clear that the outflow has to stop. He further went on to say, quote, It goes without saying that the so called refugee camps in West Berlin. The transit camps in which refugees were processed en route from West Berlin to West Germany will be closed down. On August 13, 1961, a barbed wire barrier that would become the Berlin Wall separating East and West Berlin was erected by East Germany. Two days later, a concrete wall began to be erected. This new wall would extend about 830 miles or 1,340 kilometers The zonal border, which separated the wall, would extend some 3.5 miles or 5.6 kilometers on its East German side, with an additional tall steel mesh fence running along a quote-unquote death strip, bordered by bands of plowed earth to slow and to reveal the prints of those trying to escape and mined fields. This almost completely stopped any unauthorized migration from the East to the West. As a result, only 5,000 people were to cross through the Berlin Wall between 1962 and 1989. One of the big problems that faced these authorities in the East was the easy access their citizens had to radio and TV signals from the West. They were able to see how much better the lives of the West citizens were. Tried as they could, the Soviet authorities had no real way to stop the media transmissions. Walter Friedrich, director of the Leipzig Institute, complained that, quote, shortcomings and weaknesses in our own country, like problems with supply of consumer goods and spare parts, media policy, rose-tinted perspectives, real democratic participation, etc., are coming increasingly into focus and subjected to sharper criticisms. To a growing extent, doubt is cast on the superiority of socialism. To combat the growing influence of the West's system, the Soviets decided that they needed to corral all of their satellite countries into a military organization. That would be known as the Warsaw Pact. It was a collective defense treaty signed in Warsaw, Poland, between the Soviet Union and seven other Eastern Bloc Socialist Republics of Central and Eastern Europe beginning on May 14, 1955. It was initially created in reaction to the integration of West Germany and to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO. The Warsaw Pact would never be called to engage NATO militarily. Their only real joint actions were to, congrush, were to crush the Hungarian Revolution of 1956 and invade Czechoslovakia in August 1968. This last act caused Albania to leave the Warsaw Pact in protest in September 1969, or 68, excuse me. By 1989, the union of the Soviet bloc countries began to crumble, first with the Solidarity protests in Poland, and finally on February 25, 1991, at a meeting in Hungary. It was decided by the remaining countries, and Germany had left the previous year after reunifying, that the Warsaw Pact, should be dissolved. In her epilogue, Anne Applebaum wrote this about the years preceding the fall of the Iron Curtain. For more than 30 years, right up to the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, the communist leaders of Eastern Europe kept asking themselves the same questions they had posed after Stalin's death. Why did this system produce such poor economic results? Why was the propaganda so unconvincing? What was the source of continuing dissent, and what was the best way to squash it? Would arrests, repression, and terror suffice to keep the communist parties in power? Or would more liberal tactics, a me- measure of economic freedom or a modicum of free speech, prevent future explosions more effectively? What changes would the Soviet Union accept And where would the Soviet leadership draw the line? With the collapse of the communist-run governments behind the Iron Curtain and the failure of the Soviet government in 1991, a question popped in in my head. What happened to the Iron Curtain itself and the land it occupied? What I found out was both a surprise and extremely pleasant revelation. It is known as the European Green Belt. The initiative is a grassroots movement for nature conservation and sustainable development along the corridor of the former Iron Curtain. The European Greenbelt is an area that follows the route of the former Iron Curtain and connects national parks, nature parks, biosphere reserves, and transboundary protected areas, as well as non-protected valuable habitats along or across the former borders. Reading from its description from Wikipedia, quote, In 1970, satellite pictures showed a dark green belt of old-growth forest on the Finnish-Russian border. In the early 1980s, biologists discovered that the inner german border between Bavaria in the west and Thuringia in the east was a refuge for several rare bird species that had disappeared from the intensely used areas covered in most Central Europe. The reasoning behind this observation was that negative human impact on the environment is smaller in such border zones which are commonly closed to public access, and thus wildlife is minimally impacted by human activities. Following the collapse of the Warsaw Pact in the Soviet Union, the borders between the countries along the Iron Curtain were opened up, with no need for the rigid walls, barbed wire, and the open dead man's land. Instead of numerous countries from the Bering Sea to the North, to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean to the South, the Green Belt Conservation Initiative was formed to conserve the natural assets along the former Iron Curtain. The Green Belt is broken up into four distinct districts. You have the Finoscandian Green Belt of Norway, Finland, Russia, the Baltic Green Belt Estonia, Latvia, Russia, and Lithuania, the Central European Green Belt, Poland, Germany and the inner German border, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Austria, Hungary, Slovenia, Croatia, and Italy, and the Balkan or Southeastern European Green Belt. It is uh, populated by Serbia, Montenegro, Kosovo, Bulgaria, Romania, North Macedonia, Albania, Greece, and Turkey. Here's some of the things biologists have noted about the different areas of the Green Belt. First, there was a ban on pesticide spraying and has preserved many rare insects. Keeping the vegetation cut so border guards could see across easily stopped the areas from becoming a continuous forest, thus preserving wildlife that needs open land. One peculiar occurrence noted was that forest deer still refused to cross the border uh, in a forested area of this belt between Bavaria and Bohemia, 18 years after the border barrier was removed. Old landmine explosion craters have become wildlife ponds. In the Bulgaria-Greece section, there are many eastern imperial eagle's nests. Where the river Drava is the former frontier between Hungary and Croatia, mutual mistrust prevented river development. So the river and its banks are still natural, including the river creating sand cliffs, where sand Martin's nest. The Drava has cut off meanders, leaving many bits of each nation's territory on the wrong side of the river. These areas are not farmed, and they become wildlife regions. Along the coast of the Mecklenburg area, restricted access to the coast to stop people from crossing over by boat or swimming helped to preserve coastal wildlife. So, we have something good coming out of the Iron Curtain. While it separated families like mine for decades, it eventually came down. Although there are still remnants of another Iron Curtain around the world, most notably between North and South Korea, there is hope that one day that nothing like this will be erected ever again. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we head back in time to talk about Ivan the Terrible's version of the secret police, the Streltsy. But before I go, some of you may know my interest in Rotary. I've been a Rotarian for over 25 years and... And I just joined a new club, which is one of the most unique ones in the world. It's known as the Rotary Club of International Exchange. Uh, Our club has the youngest president that we know of in all of Rotary, which includes thousands upon thousands of clubs worldwide. Uh, She was a Rotary Youth Exchange student who went to Thailand. We have other students who went to Italy, Sweden, uh, all over the world, France. And what they're doing is they're getting together to form a Rotary Club. What we want to do through a GoFundMe account, which is for the Rotary Club of International Exchange, is to raise about $2,000 in order to help bring a student from a foreign country over to Reno, Nevada, to show them about American culture, about the English language. And that way they can go back and learn more about this cultural exchange. What's really unique about this club is you can join it from anywhere in the world. Uh, we are going to be inducting one uh, a former Italian exchange student who lives in London in our club soon. We have a member in Tucson, Arizona, whereas our club is based in Reno, Nevada. So please, if you can go to GoFundMe, look up the Rotary Club of International Exchange, and make a small donation. It would be greatly appreciated. So until next time, das svidaniya. Ich späß siebe, manja.